Hello and welcome back to your friendly neighbourhood podcast. This is Strike, the MCU for British fans by British fans. As we teased at the end of the last episode, we have got an interview lined up for today. We're, we're sticking with the X-Men theme, so let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome to the show. As I said at the, at the top of the show, we are joined by someone that, that was a major force behind Marvel's animated success. Um, so please join me in welcoming him, the X-Men animated series creator and showrunner Eric Leewald and his lovely wife and creative partner Julia. <laughs> Hello. Hi Paul. So joining us for the interview, we've got Josh. Hello. And Tony. Hello. Sadly, Craig can't make it tonight. He's he's working and he's also recording another podcast um, shortly as well once he gets home. So he couldn't join us tonight, but he, he does say hello and he'll be back for, for our next episode. So going straight into to talking to you guys, um, of course, we brought you on to, to talk about the X-Men series. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit about your CV of what you did before and a little bit about what you did after as well. So, Eric, I... I had a quick look at IMDb um, for both of you. Um, start with Eric. Um, 1979, your first film um, that was your own. You directed it and wrote it. Uh, the The Incoming Freshman. Talk about <laughs> talk about what that was. Obviously, that was a live action film as well, which we're going to talk a lot about animation. But this was obviously your first first real foray into to filmmaking. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, a dear friend of mine, I, I grew up in East Tennessee, which is not exactly the film hotbed of the U.S. And uh, a buddy of mine and I loved, fell in love with movies and decided right after we graduated that we'd try to make one that we could sell. And there used to be drive-in movies at the time, and there would be cheesy, you know, sexy stewardesses and pom-pom girls, things like that, movies that, We'd go, we'd go and see them and it looked like they were made for, you know, 10 cents. So I thought, well, we don't have any money, but maybe we can afford something at this level. And we raised a little money and made it all at our university, uh, with student, uh, actors, student crew. And so basically it was our student film. Um, and somehow it sold. I mean, we were just silly, naive and arrogant enough to see, you know, to try to do it. And so if you go see it, please be kind. It, it is, it is the first thing we ever did. And it sometimes plays very much like a student film, but, uh, you know, it played around. Uh, 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 and this is, this is so long ago. You guys are dating <laughs> us that they had just figured out to put home video in the contracts. There weren't any video stories yet. There certainly was no internet. Um, and so basically if you had a movie, it played, uh, in the theaters or it didn't play at all. And, uh, that was our first shot. And it, uh, to our surprise, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, clever, uh, Hollywood co- company that uh, bought it from us and distributed it, you know, never paid us. And so that was our, that was our introduction to the ways of Hollywood. Uh, but, and the, the flip side, you know, it got, it got shown. It got us, you know, a foot in the door. And so, and we had a wonderful time. I mean, there's no, nothing more exciting than being in your early twenties with a bunch of other people in your early twenties making a movie together. You know, so it was, it was great. It's just great experience. Uh, please don't, uh, don't look at it if you don't have to. <laughs> 
That's great. So, so then you moved moved into animation in in the early eighties um, with the likes of Challenge of the GoBots and Sky Commanders. Uh, the one that piqued my interest around that era was uh, working on Popeye and Son. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was lucky. My a neighbor was working for Hanna Barbera. That's how I got my first job out here uh, in nineteen uh, fall of eighty four, and uh, went in and with another friend from Tennessee. Pitched ourselves, so we just they suddenly we're doing a lot more animation, doing you know, 65 at a time, you know, uh, episodes at a time. Uh, and GoBots was going then, and got and got a foot in the door. Of all things, Popeye and Son, we sold it to CBS. I was part of the little small group that sold it, and we were not thrilled with it because we loved the old Popeyes from the 30s, where he was this nasty sailor that was cussing under his breath and, you know, beating the hell out of Bluto all the time. And the television network said, no, 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 uh, he needs to be nice. He and Bluto can't fight, and his son can't look like him because uh, Popeye's so ugly. Make the son look like Archie. So we started out with a few, you know, with our hands uh, tied behind our back a little bit on that one. But that was I was on staff at Hanna-Barbera at the time, and it was one of the half dozen things like that and Sky Commanders that I worked on when I was when I was there on staff it was wonderful learning experience meeting uh uh Joe uh and uh uh Bill, you know, the the founders of the place that had, you know, a hundred years of experience between them. Uh it was it was very and, and it got me my uh got me my job at Disney where I met Julia. So it uh it, it was a good experience. And that that's literally <laughs> where I I was gonna go next. Um Obviously, as I, I said to you guys, I'm also a host on a on a Disney podcast. So, to find that you've worked on the Disney Afternoon series of cartoons, absolutely, my interest went sky high. Um, there's there's some of my fa- in fact, I've got a couple of of little action figures sitting on my shelf of of Blue, Chip and Dale. Um, oh. So I'm I'm an absolute huge fan of the Disney Afternoon series. Uh, Rescue Rangers was one of my fave. Still makes me laugh that it was based on on Indiana Jones and um, <laughs> just just amazing. And considering that those they nearly played the same roles. Yeah, Julie ended up. Uh, she came in mid course but she ended up doing fourteen of them. IMDb says twelve, but the credits got knocked around. She wrote more Chippendales than anybody else at, at, at the studio. Yeah, but, but all credit to, to the brilliant Tad Stones, uh, who, who did that and so many other things, uh, at Disney, uh, specifically Darkwing Duck, which came shortly thereafter, so. Yeah, Tad, Tad was, Tad was the heart and soul of that place. Yeah. Uh, he hired us both and, and he was behind, I'd say 80% of the success they had. Um, he was, he was why we were there and he was why we regretted having to go. It, it just amazes me because it's so popular, and, and even some of them are coming back. Oh yeah, which the big news with Dark with Ducktales now. Yep, exactly. That, and and there's talk of spinoffs again of Darkwing Duck and and the likes. It's just it's doing really well, and and that whole era. Another one from that era, obviously coming back, is Muppet Babies as well. Um, it just it seems to be really rolling around again. Well, if anybody knows how to. Um, Work a property. It's good old Disney. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think there's, there's people maybe that are that were 12 at the time, and now they're 37, and and they're in positions of uh, power in Hollywood, and they have great memories of the. These were their favorite shows. These were the shows that turned them on to animation. So 
it kind of makes sense that every 20 years or so stuff gets recycled out here. It's, it's what people have an affection for. And, and moving on, on from that, the same kind of era shortly afterwards, Eric, you moved on to, to working on, on what had become a cult classic at the time, uh, Beetlejuice, um, uh-huh. another, another one of my favourite films. I've seen some of the animated series um, and obviously is very popular in, in theme park areas with, with him appearing at Universal Studios now. Uh, what was it like moving from, from Disney into working on, on basically what was a, a horror comedy? Oh, it's great. It's great fun because Disney was a fairly, always forever has been a fairly controlled place. They have a very narrow uh, idea of the kind of shows they want to tell. For instance, they never would have done anything nearly as adult as X-Men. Uh, and Beetlejuice the, was for uh, the, the Fox network had just started. It's hard to remember back then, but there were three networks in the U.S. for about 50 years. And then Fox decided they'd try to be a little network, and they were on maybe six hours a day. And uh, they got Beetlejuice had been on another uh, uh, network on ABC for a couple of years, and it was kind of younger. And when Fox got the rights to it, they said, "Let's make this older and creepier and more intense, so that we can distinguish it from from the previous one." So that was a lot of fun. It was uh, going from Disney to Beetlejuice. It was a it was a, it was a change of tone, and the people there uh, that that hired me, uh, Margaret Lesh and Sydney Iwater, were the same two people that hired us for for X Men. So that was the great gift to me was doing twenty an episode of uh, a season of twenty Beetlejuices as a supervisor was what earned me the chance to do X Men. So it was very important. Can I just say, I'm looking down your list. There's some great episode titles for Beetlejuice, I must say. Like Wizard <laughs> of Ooze just cracks me up. <laughs> um, and you've also got Katmandu Got Your Tongue. That's very clever. <laughs> yeah, well, that was, that was the great thing about, about it is that uh, it was uh, a, just a wild enough, kind of open enough, chaotic enough uh, uh, show that they let you do stuff like that and and, and, and encouraged it. And, and so it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was a great, the great fun year. So, so then we, we kind of move in, into the nineties and, and you worked together again on a, on a few series at, at that point, including Street Fighter, which uh-huh. was another one that I, I looked at and went, that was, that was what I kind of lived through as a, as a youngster that playing those games and, and watching those series. What kind of experience was that? That was actually very good. The, uh, it was for uh, the USA Network, which is a major cable channel out here. And they were, uh, they'd hired the same uh, designer, director, producer, Will Minio, who had been, uh, who, had, who had set up X-Men and then who had set up X-Men with, you know, he was on the art side, I was on the writing side. He also was who set up ExoSquad with me. So this was the third series we'd done together. And he really knew, I didn't really know the Street Fighter world that well. Uh, and it's not as, as deep or broad a world as X-Men to work with, but he did. He understood it and he was the one. So I was again, again, the same, I think it was the same, also the same animation house, Graz Entertainment did the animation. So I was working with friends then. 
uh, with Street Fighter. So that was good. Um, I left that after a year and Will took over just complete control for the last, for the second year. But, but it was, it was, it was, again, uh, we, there hasn't, there's not as much action adventure. I know there is in the movies, but we haven't had it in the, for, for television, uh, things have gotten a lot younger since the nineties. And that's, you just have to adjust with it if you're, you know, if you're making a, a living out here. But I did really much enjoy, uh, writing the more, you know, the, the harder edged, older action shows. And let me just set the stage here too, that Eric and I had, we met at good old Disney TV afternoon and it, it was a, it was just a hive of creativity there. The, the most talented artists and most talented writers. It was just fun going to work. But then upon leaving Disney, we jumped into the freelance universe and that meant working on 1990s computers on TV trays jammed up against our bedroom wall <laughs> while we were starting our family. So we had uh, one young son born right after I'd left Disney. The two of us had left Disney and then uh, one on the way in early 1992. And you got a phone call then. Yeah. That was, so that, it, it's hard to, to explain, but this doing piecework, which I, people now call the gig economy, is what we've since what we've been doing since we left Disney in, yeah. in, in ninety ninety one. Uh, you just you know you get a job and sometimes it's for a week and sometimes it's for a year, but you never have any assurance that it that you're it's going to continue. So getting Beetlejuice after after this after being away from Disney for a couple months was a great gift. But the the X Men thing was just out of the blue. We you know the, there was no warning about that. I, I got the call the night before. The big meeting where like Stanley and Haim Saban and all the people were there to announce we're doing an X-Men show. Oh, and by the way, this guy's going to write it. So I, 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 and at the time I said, well, that's a comic book, right? <laughs> you know, I didn't know them at all. And I had to go to the meeting and, and pretend that I did while these other, uh, everybody was holding forth about what, you know, plans for the, for the project. And it's 1992. There is no internet. You know, there are no 24 hour comic book stores there. The libraries don't carry this stuff. It was learning in a whole different environment. It was, was a real scramble. Yeah. Before the web, you know, figuring stuff like that out. And I, I can Im- imagine so because at the time, obviously Marvel were kind of struggling, um, in terms of funds and, and things like that. They, they'd started selling off their characters. Um, so it, it wasn't the easiest thing to, to come across and, and to create such a behemoth that you, you did, um, and is still so popular now, um, is a real credit. Um, and it's still watched to this day that the, the opening theme is, is still so popular amongst comic book fans. Uh, I can't, can't imagine, imagine what it must have felt like at the time of, of creating it. And, and I wanted to, I wanted to touch on this. You went through five seasons and, and touched on a lot of the major X-Men storylines. Um, ones that have been touched on by the films, films now, like Days of Future Past, Weapon X, Apocalypse, and the, the one that's, that's set to, to trigger in, in the next six months or so, the, the Dark Phoenix saga. Was there any, ever any trepidation on, on walking into those, those major storylines that the comic book fans love so much? There's an irony here that, again, back in good old 1992 and forward, uh, without the internet, uh, we, we were not in one of the 
Now it would be an echo chamber like it is now. People you know, jumping online and, and raging or applauding or whatever, venting. And we we didn't have any of that back then. If someone wanted to vent, they had to get out a piece of paper, find an address, put a stamp on it. And that, that just we we weren't a party yeah. to any of that. It didn't. It never got to us. Yeah. So yeah. And to, to, to answer the question about that, we had an interesting setup where the main people on the art side, Will Minio and Larry Houston, were big lifelong Marvel crazy fans and and knew that world and knew what was important and knew what the fans loved. Um, and I and Mark Edens, who was a buddy of mine from college, who was my main writer. That, that was help that was helping on the writing side. We were we were not aware of what of the Marvel history or what the fans liked or didn't like. So we went into it kind of blind and naive and just said, okay, what are the best stories we can tell with these characters? And we there was a wonderful thing called the Marvel Universe that came out about 1980 that had every character and who you know who they were friends with and who they fought with and who they were related to. So we had this encyclopedia of the Marvel characters, and we just treated that. We we went to that rather than specific comic books. I think we laid out the first thirteen episodes without ever picking up a comic book. So it wasn't like we were we were translating them. We were we were we were free, learning this world the best we could, and then we were just trying to tell the best stories we could. So uh, with these particular characters. So with that in mind, when Marvel did suggest doing Days of Future Past, which, by the way, Julia wrote the first half of. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was interesting. It was a fun challenge to actually grab the the, the books that it was taken from, a couple books it was taken from, and do a direct uh, adaptation. And that was kind of the outlier. That was the thing we didn't usually do. Um, so I, I found it kind of it was kind of a gift because we weren't having to to you know, come up with the stories just kind of uh, out of the blues is a gift. Okay. Here's something that, that they love. Uh, let's, let's see what we can do with it. Um, I think we were also um, just, we were just unaware how big a deal say uh, the Phoenix and the dark Phoenix and days of future past were. Those are the three big ones that we actually adapted. Um, uh, what they meant to the fans. We really didn't get a sense of that, but we also respected that world so much. We so much want to respect the the books that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a struggle. It was, it was like, okay, great. We get to tell a four or five part story. You know, how, how wonderful we get to stretch out a 90 or 120 minute. Uh, that, that was just, that was kind of a gift to us. And I'm going to jump in here and I'm going to call Josh out for being ridiculous. So young. <laughs> um, it's to ask the fan on the street. And Superman had 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 you know its its movies, and uh, Batman had in '89 had come out. You know, but just a casual observer of superheroes, people. Oh, yeah, I heard of the X Men, but probably couldn't name you more than two. Yeah, think about this. We were told by the network that probably at least ninety percent of the people, the kids that turned on to. That would be, so wouldn't know the actor because there had never been a Marvel movie of any kind, and there'd been kind of little attempts at uh, TV shows, you know, the '60s Spider-Man and 
and there was a couple Fantastic Fours thrown in there, and they were tended to be kind of silly and goofy and having pets or they did whatever. It wasn't. It was never satisfying to the comic book uh, world that knew them at the time, which was much smaller. Um, as, as you were saying, maybe nine superhero movies over 50 years, getting uh, up to ours, they really didn't think there were going to be enough people to watch the show to make it successful. We weren't. We were only given a one season contract because they were sure that it was not only it was it wasn't going to succeed. And that was this. That was the atmosphere where we were starting, and not that nowadays where three billion people the X Men are, and there's nations. Then it, nobody knows. Who are. Do your best, but this probably isn't going to work. Yeah, and, and that's amazing that you you came through with with five seasons in the end, um, and got to tell those those wonderful stories that that literally sprang from the from the page. Um, and uh, talking about you, you did use all of the major major X Men characters that were that were kind of popular at that point. Did you guys have a favorite that you used to like writing for? I got to tell you, Beast is was so much fun to write for, and that was because all of us are you know repressed poets or whatever. And to be working on a Saturday morning kids show, but to but to approach it at, with with real intelligence and respect. Uh, for the storytelling and then being able to, to have a character whose whole thing is he is just really, really smart and would know, and long, that was a lot of fun. Again, back in the early days, um, over on Eric's side of the office here is, what, what book was that? The, there's a quote book that you have. Oh yeah, 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 it's just, just an old dusty, my dad was, was a teacher, had a couple of dusty quote books, you know, uh, from, you know, 500 years of history. And so, Beast would come up with a, a problem and instead of having him say Kawabanga or something or let's kick ass, I said, well, he'd say something bookish. And so the, the, the writers started getting into it and coming up with really obscure stuff, <laughs> uh, which, which we just, we just thought was, was great fun. As far as, um, obviously all the writers and there were, there were like 20 credited writers on the show, which is true over 76 episodes. I used a lot of folks. Uh, most everybody loved writing for Wolverine. He's just so, he's such a incredibly vibrant character. You can't help but love writing for a rebel like that. But, um, and I did too, of course, but when people ask me what who my favorite character was, I, I picked somebody that almost nobody picks and that's Professor X. And I think it's because he was this guy in charge of a dysfunctional family of eight, you know, warring, complaining, uh, people at his house. And I kind of felt that I was supervising, you know, a bunch of writers, all who had maybe different ideas of what they wanted the show to be. And I had to talk, I had to gradually talk them all into pulling them, you know, at the same pace and, and, and writing the same way. So I felt very much like the, the father. And because of that, I, I was very attracted to, to Professor X. See, that's what's so great about the show because it's the fact that you guys wrote a, f- a family dynamic and such a great family dynamic. You did it so well that that's why people connect with the show. And I, for one, applaud you for it. Seriously. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Because I used to, I used to come home from school. Well, when, when this is, I know I'm only 18, but this is a while ago. But it, 
I used to come home and the Fox Network, Kids Fox Time was on, on an, one of our British channels and it would be Power Rangers, Spider-Man show and then your X-Men show would come on and i go, yeah, Wolverine, Wolverine and I'd cheer for Wolverine and then that's what got me into the X-Men because I, I was one of those people who went into that show thinking, who are these people? <laughs> and then I'd, come, I'd, I'd finish the first episode and go, I love those guys. <laughs> you know, and, and let's, uh, a quick jump back. Uh, you mentioned, Paul, earlier about the, the opening sequence and, and the driving yes. theme song that all of us can, we can all sing the words to. <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 da. Yeah. But, uh, the, the challenge that, that was facing, uh, Larry Houston and, and Wilminio was, you've got, let's say, nine characters that most folks have never heard of. Uh, and they're gonna be, the audience is going to be dumped into the middle of their world. How do we introduce these people so that if someone turns on the TV and goes, I don't know who this is, in that, what, minute and 50 yeah. seconds, boy, it's a brilliant introduction just, just to each of the characters. It's just a minute. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we had big discussions about this at first. Um, I don't know if you'd heard this, but uh, Stan Lee wanted to, to not only introduce the show, but he wanted to narrate the show which was not the way we were wanting to go, so we had a bit of a fight over that. But it did leave this the worry in the network mind saying, well, how do we, yeah, uh, how how can we get across what the show is uh, without weighing the, the episodes down with people explaining, who, hi, I'm the guy with all the powers, and I do this, and I do that. So they had Will and Larry, again, the two are, are people in charge on the art side who I always, who we owe so much to. They just sat down and, and wrote out the, did out a, the, uh, a storyboard of that opening and had one set, set of notes, revised it. And that was what you got. It was about three days work. Those guys put that together. And I look back now and I just think it's a, it's a template for how to introduce uh, a completely different TV world to an audience. I think it works perfectly. Mm-hmm. The guys Great. that made, I had nothing to do with it. So I, I think <laughs> I can take that credit. Neither the music nor the, nor the visuals, but the visuals just came out of Larry and Will's heads about what you should see, how much you should see of each character, what they should be doing and how to get their character across in that very, very short time. Just, uh, just amazing. I, as I said, I we've actually used the music on the podcast. We don't, uh, we don't make it, don't make any money from this podcast. It's, it's literally just a, a, a hobby for us. And so we've, we've used it. We actually used it on the on our episode um, announcing that Disney were buying Fox. Um, we oh, thought yeah. it, we thought it was appropriate, so we used that as our title credit, uh, title music on on that episode. So we thought it was appropriate that the X Men were coming coming back. In house with the rest of the the universe, so so we used it for for that, um, and it's it just it's one of those ones that same era the Spider Man one that also gets stuck in your head. It's just both of those were just wonderful. Agreed, absolutely agreed, and set the tone for every episode and and for you know each of those for the entire series run. Just beautifully done. I was watching the um the YouTube video you put up of the honest trailers earlier. Yes, where, where that's picked up on. And I just, it did crush me up. I just want, how do you feel when you see something like that? Is it kind of a badge of honor when, when somebody makes something like that about your show? Oh, it's wonderful. It's really done with love. I have to tell you, when, uh, we, we found out about that, 
from we're new. We, we I feel like we're new to the world of Twitter, the world of all that stuff as we're trying to get our feet wet in there. And the weekend we started on Twitter as X-Men TAS was the weekend that came out. And, and our adult kids are here at home in our office going, oh, mom, dad, um, this is really funny, but uh, you need to be aware of this. <laughs> And in watching it and then becoming familiar with the Screen Junkies folks, their trailers are brilliant. They can be brutal, but they are brilliant. Mm -hmm. But in this particular case, uh, when they were aiming to sort of take a shot at X-Men Apocalypse, the movie, uh, instead we feel like it's a great big kiss on the lips to X-Men, the animated series. (laughs) Have been just big fans of that ourselves ever since it came out. Yeah, they were wonderful. As, as after we after we saw the the trailer, Julia called them up, and the next week they had us on their show for an hour. So they it <laughs> oh, was brilliant. And they had us on again on Screen Junkies News back in uh, late early December to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Just when, when and we actually announced that we were doing a book about the show on on, on Screen Junkies. So gee, a year and a half ago. Yeah. And then we went back on. The week after, or a couple weeks after the book actually came out this past fall, uh, and that's actually where I was. I was going to go now. We we've asked you on because you have have got a, a new book out um, previously on the, on X Men. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it involves and and where it's taken you. Well, in looking, okay, <laughs> um, the, Josh, you're you're not a part of this conversation. You're too young. <laughs> <laughs> you can uh, start I, to make conversation. <laughs> um, about five years ago, realizing it was going to be the 20th anniversary of X-Men, the animated series, as well as the 20th anniversary of Batman, the animated series, also on Fox at that time. And thinking, you know, I bet there's some folks out there who might have fond memories of X-Men, the animated series. And it might be nice to, I don't know, go to a convention or a festival and talk about it. But no one was asking us. And Everyone was asking Batman, and part of that is the rights issues are so convoluted and so complex. It fell apart completely while we were making the series. Yeah, yeah, you were talking about Fox and, and uh, getting together with Disney, which would be a big deal for us because when, you know, Julia is the one that got, said, Eric, you gotta write this, you gotta write this book. If you don't do it, nobody else will. Um, and so, so we went to, you know, we, we called up Disney Marvel saying, well, do you wanna, Support us on this. This we'll, 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 I'll put in a couple of years to write the book, but you know we want it to be as spectacular as possible, and this will be only good for no response at all because of the, because Fox owns the X Men characters for TV and movies, and Disney Disney Marvel is now a fierce competitor with them. So for the last three years, while we were thinking about doing the book, there was just quiet. You know, we think well. Marvel thinking, do we even get rid of the X-Men? Because we don't own them. Fox owns them. So why don't we just get rid of them from the books? Yeah, the, the M-Virus that was there sweeping was, through them. There the was M-Virus, there was, there, was no, there was no interest whatsoever out here. To, so we said, so, okay, well, what the hell? We'll, we'll do it ourselves. So part of that was um, we had a crawl. We have a space up above our garage. And again, back in 1992 through 97, uh, we'd get paper. Uh, every script was, was on paper. Every storyboard was on paper. Every memo was on paper, every note was on paper. And we just kept putting them in boxes and putting them upstairs. And we realized we had a treasure. I felt it was a treasure trove of every script from premise to, to yeah, the yeah. final. So we had all, all this material. And luckily, just about everybody that worked on the show is still alive. 
uh, not at East, you know, 25 years later. So I just, I just started interviewing, calling people up. All the cast is in Canada, except for Storm, who actually Barbados, which suits, you know, suits her accent. And as of today, we still haven't met a single one yeah, of them in yeah. person. This is an odd thing to, to understand. We wrote it and it was drawn here in Los Angeles, but it was, vo- the voices were done in Toronto. 2,500 miles away, Toronto, oh, Canada. Oh. And, and it just happened to be, I mean, typical thing out here. X-Men was a modest budgeted show. And so, uh, about half the, the, say the budget of Batman. And so the, the voices, the voice talent is cheaper. They have a better deal Canada than they do out here. So that's where the voice, it, it turned out it worked great for us because we told them we wanted a really adult show and all these very sophisticated top actors in Toronto came and vied to be on the show. It took, it took a couple tries to get it right. But once we got them, we got like the best cast you could find in this very sophisticated theater city. Um, so, uh, that it, it ended up working very great for us. But again, the joke is I'm starting to write the book. I was in charge of all the scripts, every line of dialogue from beginning to end, and I'd never met the, I'd never met the cast. They all, they all live in Canada. So I was able to Skyping and through, you know, phone interviews, able to interview just about all of them. And that was wonderful for me because we got to reminisce and I got to find out how much they love doing the show and look forward to getting our, you know, scripts up every week. So far, we haven't come across anyone who doesn't have anything but fond memories of the show uh, from from a working standpoint. And again, so 25 years ago, Eric, if we don't do this, it's not going to get done because we don't have the support like Warner Brothers was supporting Batman and continues to do so. So, uh, yeah, I was pushing and he was he was then then then. He yeah, said yes. I kind of didn't want to do it. We were still working on other shows and it sounded sound like something you do after you retire, you know, like have a memoir or something. Yeah. But she thought not being foolish about it. And so it was great. I say interviewing all the writers, or the main writers, uh, the ex- network executives, the Marvel executives, everybody that had a hand in doing it. Yeah, everybody, there's 36 interviews in the book along with the main history of the show from, from the years that, the, that one lady, there's this one person that, that wanted to get it on the air, Margaret Lesh. Um, it was her doing. If she hadn't pushed, if she hadn't kept after it, it never would have been on television. No matter how big a comic book X-Men became, it never would have been on television without her. She made it happen. So there's a history of her attempts to get it on. Finally, she gets it on. She had done, even done Pride of the X-Men before that to try to get the X-Men going. And that didn't work, but she she kind of hit gold with the group she got this time. So there's the history in the book, and then there's there's the interviews and there's even testimonials from fans, which is a fun thing. You know, when we when we started our website and our Twitter feed, we get these heartfelt testimonials from people talking about how it was you know the show of their youth, you know, changed their life. It was how and. We, we had no sense of that. You know, we're sitting typing, as Julie said, in our dining, on our dining room table mm-hmm. and handing, and tossing scripts off, um, uh, handing in floppy disks, <laughs> yeah. you know, back then. And we had no connection really with the fans. And then we start doing the research for the book and realizing how many tens of millions of people love the show is just really gratifying. It's, yes. it's really humbling. Yes. 
and and yeah, it's it's amazing. I I haven't had a chance to read the book yet. I'm I'm hoping to very shortly. Um, and it sounds like an amazing read and really right down my my street. I love. I love the sense of the behind the scenes of Hollywood. I know Tony, you do as well. We, we've mentioned mm-hmm. before that's how we met was was looking behind the scenes at, at conventions and, and things like that. So it's right right up our alley completely. So it's definitely on on the list to read. Um, looking at um, your career after X Men as well, um, I noticed that you worked worked on Young Hercules with with Ryan Gosling. Um, yeah, that, yes, that must have been an amazing experience <laughs> to to be in such in charge of such an epic show, a huge, like, real epic world. I suppose in in that sense, it was really something that was coming to the fore at that point. Things like Gladiator and Hercules, as well. Obviously, the the older Hercules with with Kevin Sorbo, um, must have been an amazing experience. Certainly, did you guys get to go out to New Zealand? Oh. We feel so bad. Uh, we they would have let it. We could have gone out as right after we finished because it was so often times they make decisions at the last minute out here, and they say, okay, we're starting a month behind, so everybody just start writing as fast as you can. So we were ter- we were finishing two scripts a week on that show for 25 weeks in a row. But uh, unlike animation, live action was churning up right behind, the direction on live action was happening right behind us. These things were being shot and you know, filmed yeah. Yeah, and, immediately. And, 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 yeah, so it was fun. We, we, we get to see some of the footage back from New Zealand. There wasn't a time to, there wasn't a break to go during production, but we had planned to go as soon as we were done to go out and meet all the wonderful people that worked on the, on the project out there. A few of the, the actors came to LA a couple times, like, uh, uh, obviously Ryan who lived here and, and, uh, Yolas came out here for a couple of things, but, but we, we just, we just were too exhausted and we had another, we had another show starting right up. And so we said, well, New Zealand's 15 hours. I just don't know. So, so we, we never went out there, but we, we, we'd have uh production, uh, uh, conference calls with the people there and they were just, it was the nicest cruise. We'd give them hard things to do. And if you're in animation, you just draw something spectacular. If you're, <laughs> if you're doing a live action show, you have to build it. And, and then blow it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, these folks really, you know, they, they took a challenge wonderfully. They said, okay, well, that sounds like it's three times too hard to do, but I'll, I'll talk to the guys. And, and a week later we'd see it. And then the time when, by the time came around when we thought we actually could make it down there. The sets had already been struck and the crew had already dispersed. So, so we missed our window and yeah. we regret that. We do regret that. But we did meet young Ryan Gosling. Oh yeah. A couple yeah, of times. Yeah. yeah. Ju- 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 he was, he was not quite 18 when he signed this contract and he was about six foot one, 135 pounds. And <laughs> they had to spend a month, the first month as they were preparing the show, frantically feeding him. And working him out, and they even ended up having to draw some muscles on him. Airbrush. Airbrush. Oh yeah. And it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. He's just, it was, a, it was a skinny teenager. And what are you, gonna, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, but he was the nicest guy, and he was that good, that young. Yeah, you could tell you, even you, that. You could, we could all tell. There were other, you know, tougher, more Hercules-looking actors that were up for the role, and he hadn't been cast by the time we signed on. They were just trying to decide like the week after they signed us, they finally signed him. Um, but they were, he was, 
he, he was in almost, he was in most of the scenes. Yeah. He carried that show and he was 18 and, and he did it. And we would have loved to have had that show run longer, um, season wise, but that, that one fell apart kind of as a result of, uh, ownership issues, ownership issues too. Yeah. Renaissance Pictures, which had done, and Hercules and Xena, uh, was doing this in conjunction with, with Fox TV for the kids channel, yeah. kids network, and it, it got chewed up by who got what and where, when, why. Yeah, so. and Heim Saban bought, you know, the, the kid bought the channel and, and he didn't have an interest in the show, so it just didn't go on, but it, it did, it did very well. And and, I'm proud of it. Yeah, yeah, uh, it was very different. Writing, uh, actually, writing anim, uh, live action, for us anyway, is much easier than writing animation. The scripts are about half as long because you're not, when we're writing for animation, like for, for X-Men, we're calling out all the stuff that the, the artists are drawing, you know, what you're seeing on screen and who's rushing in and who's rushing off and, and how the battles work. And in live action, you basically leave all that up to the director. You just say, you know, Hercules confronts Ares here in the field and they fight for a while. So, so it's, it's, it, animation doesn't get a lot of credit sometimes with, from the writer's standpoint, there's more work. So, would it be closer to writing a comic script in some ways doing animation in that respect? A, a, a bit in that if you're actually also writing the, the, di- writing the story and laying out the action, yeah, it's, you know, thinking mm-hmm. through all that versus just saying, okay, here's a fun story. Uh, where Sabretooth waylays Wolverine in a, in a back alley somewhere. Just, uh, yeah, imagining, imagining all the physical part. Yeah. So it, it is, it is closer to comics, but, mm-hmm. uh, it, and it's been great fun for all these years. Yeah. Uh, the, the last thing I kind of wanted to touch on for, for you, Julia, on, on your own was, uh, was Robocop Alpha Commando. Um, another completely different departure and, and obviously very different to the original films. Um, yes. I, I, I'm sure I remember seeing them because my brother was a big Robocop fan and had, had watched the, the films, the series as well. And I'm sure, some, I'm sure the TV series may have come with some of the, the episodes on it when they released them on DVD. I've, I've got a feeling I must have seen them on that. That's, that's quite possible. That was done in conjunction with MGM Studios, who at that time um, w- it had a few properties they were interested in, in exploring, you know, through animation. And RoboCop was one of those and, and gave us the chance to work with um, a great executive who we enjoy a lot, a guy named Jay Fukudo, who we met at Disney. And then he moved, he was at MGM and then uh, he, he called us out to talk with him and then go forward with RoboCop. And again, here we are 25 years later. The fellow who's the voice of Robocop is a very talented voice guy named David Soboloff. And we've worked with him, I don't know, Robocop completely in a few other projects. Never met the guy. <laughs> and then we got to about five years ago and, uh, I feel we, and he, he is, um, uh, Gorilla Grodd, uh, the voice on, um, the, oh, wow. yeah, on the, uh, primetime show and, uh, he does the voice of Drax in the animated series for Guardians of the Galaxy now. I mean, he is busy, but it's, it's fun to go back and see. He, I think this was one of his first jobs too, several years ago. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we met him at a con. He was, <laughs> he was signing stuff and we looked up and said, it's Robocop. And he looked at us and said, wait a minute, Eric and Julia. 
Yeah. So he 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 read all you know our name on all forty two scripts or whatever they were, but ha- hadn't met us, and so it was it was a it was a fun meet. Yeah. That's wonderful. As we we've said, we we attend conventions on a regular regular basis, so it's it's great hearing stories like that of people reconnecting after all those years. Uh, and the, and the last thing that I kind of wanted to bring up is is you guys stepped back towards Marvel for a while on uh, Avengers United They Stand. Um, how was that as a different experience working? I assume that was for Marvel. Yeah, that that was not that was that was a less happy experience. The X Men, everything came together beautifully. It was kind of magic, you know, lightning in a bottle. All the right people, all wanting the same show, all seeming to just push the edge of what was possible. And that just and on Avengers, unfortunately, Marvel had become a little more controlling at that time, and. And I, I, we didn't have the right executive at the, at the network that we did it for. So he had odd ideas about what the show should be. But the most important problem was at the top, you know, nowadays Marvel, everybody overlaps everybody and it's a wonderful synergy where you see people, different superheroes in different people's movies. And the more you see, see them, the better the, mm-hmm. the more everybody. Then they had this silly idea. This is right after the bankruptcy. So I don't know what. Who was in charge? But they had the silly idea that, oh, we want to save most of the Avengers, the best Avengers, for their own shows. So we went in a meeting thinking, well, this will be Avengers. This could be a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, look at all these. Thor, there's Iron Man. But they said, no Thor, uh, sorry saving him. No Iron Man, sorry we're saving him. No Hulk, sorry we're saving him. (laughs) No Captain America, sorry we're saving him. So it became... The Wasp and Ant Man show, which we're going. Wait, what? Which, <laughs> and, and, and we thought, we thought. Now the fans are going to kill us. I mean, they, they're used to. They've had twenty years of the Avengers, and they're going to be the top six are going to be absent. How can we tell these stories? And we never quite got a satisfactory answer. And so we kind of, you know, we did the best we could, and I hope the stories were still entertaining for people. But coming from a kind of fan point of view, it was one of the more difficult, you know, uh, you know, you get a project, you got to soldier through because you've been hired to do it. But it wasn't, it wasn't a happy project. And so for me, that, that's all I've got. I know the other two guys have got questions. So Tony, go ahead with, with whatever you've got, got to ask them, John. Yeah, well, yeah, sure. They've already answered one, I think, about the particular challenges of writing for animation. So I did have a couple of quick questions for you. The first one was, how does it feel to have a, a celebrity Canadian Prime Minister as a fan? <laughs> oh, Julia almost died. She, she found out about it and she said, I'm going to just, you know, here. Okay, this uh, was in November. We found yeah, out in November. Yeah. And, and so Eric, we're flying in January to Canada to hand him the book. We're going to do it. Yeah, and, and, and I said, look, it's it's going to be that we're going to find 10 minutes where he's got free. Let Wolverine and Jubilee do it. Well, and the rumor was, too, that he wanted the book earlier. He didn't want yeah. to wait till January. Yeah, yeah. When, so. we, when we set up the word that the book was that we finally got copies of the book to send out, we, we called the our, the actress, Ju, the, the, Alison, uh, Alison Ford. Ford, who's Jubilee, and said, you're the and she's the one that had a, a friend in his office that was able to get it to him. And we said we called and said, by any chance, could you have a connection? And she double checked and she called back an hour later and said, can you get it? Can you get it up like 
tomorrow. And we, we couldn't really, and we, but so yeah, Julie, Julie wanted to take out a thousand dollars of her savings and fly up so that she could deliver it directly. Yeah. Exactly. I don't think there's asking but, too much. But we, we let, we let, uh, Jubilee and, Wolver- and, and, and Caldod, Wolverine do it for us. They so, made the presentation. So that happened and we couldn't be more excited. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling that, that, uh, this, this brilliant young man, you know, leader of a major country and evidently <laughs> a serious geek, uh, loves our book. And the other thing I was going to ask you, I mean, this is something we chat about quite a lot, being Brits, obviously, and the fact that we've never got Captain Britain yet. Who would you guys cast as Captain Britain, either in live action or voice? Ooh, now that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. Gee, uh, <laughs> see, does, does, does he does he have does he have to be English? I'm trying to think. Uh, well, uh, or does a decent English accent? Sometimes you think I'd pull it off. Well, here, okay. The, <laughs> Just because he can do anything and he can do no wrong in my book, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But Alan Rickman gets my vote for anything and everything. <laughs> uh, oh, um, boy. I agree with that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think Fassbender, who's British-German, could do a pretty nice job you of think, it. I think he could probably get away with the live action as well. He got that possibly. You could see him in that Captain Britain suit, the big helmet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's already done helmets once, left, unfortunately. So. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he's done his, <laughs> he's done his helmet. Yeah. That's a good, that's interesting. I like that question. I'm going to chew on it for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you guys, so there, there, there's a nice festival circuit out there. We've been trying to say, decide if maybe we could take a month or, uh, and if there are two or three cons that were close enough together to each other over, over in Britain. There's there's certainly a a few events over in the in the UK. There's there's a company called Showmasters. One of our companies have actually just bought bought out by one of the the larger US convention corporations. Read Pop have just bought one of our major ones. Um, MCM Expo. They've got a couple here in the UK Um, as well. Europe, France, Germany, Belgium. They've all got some some really huge events. So there's definitely um, room for for a lot of events, and and they do. They bring over a lot of comic book artists, and so I'm sure you'd be absolutely welcomed with open arms. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed, and we'll keep you guys posted too. That would be fantastic for us. And and Josh, what about your your questions? Yeah, uh, my question was just something that uh, I told me I told a couple of friends that we were having you guys on the show. Um, and they said, oh my god, you've got to ask them this. So I was like, okay. Now, <laughs> we've been trying to get a little bit of writing together of, like, we wanted to write our own little sort of superhero show. We weren't going to do anything about it, it was just a bit of fun. Um, but we sort of wanted a family dynamic as well, but more in the sense of, uh, there was a group of friends who all, had their own individual abilities and uh but we wanted to make them have a really good family dynamic and we're having a lot of trouble with trying to get that to work so we were just wondering if you had any pointers on right how to bring that brilliant family dynamic that i mentioned earlier that you brought to x-men well quickly just looking at what what kind of worked for what x-men the animated series there have been decades of comic 
And then the decision to pick the folks, Eric, you, you can speak to this, but pick the actual team that ended up on the show. You know, it, each one of them is a strong character to begin with, but but each one is also challenged by his or her abilities as well. Like if if Wolverine had Rogue's abilities, he'd be fine. He'd be happy. He wouldn't care because he doesn't want to touch anybody. <laughs> He's nothing to him. You know, and Wolverine and Rogue, if she had Wolverine's ability, she can she can fight, but it wouldn't kill her to not have to pop out her claws. And but she could touch people, and that's you know, each one of them, including Beast. Every one of them had something that that if you switched them around, there would be no conflict. So coming up with something for each character to have his or her own internal conflict is very helpful. I so think if if we were to sort of write these characters with specific powers that also gave them. Real life problems, sort of linked to their abilities, that would give a pro like a, a way that they could come together and try and deal with that problem. Yeah, yeah, that I think it really helps that if you imagine them. Just we always imagine them as real people, as our you know brothers or sisters or, yeah, or parents. Yeah. So it's just uh, and that if they have and and the. We wanted to write to them to, as Julia was saying, whatever the power they have, or it's, it's like your looks. If if you if you look as beautiful as Michael Fassbender, you have a certain kind of life. If if you weigh six hundred pounds and uh, you have a different, you know, your your the physical physical stuff about you and your history has some effect on your character. So yeah. have. The, the thing that we had, I think the two things that we had, one was, and this is some, some I go on about in the book, that the best TV shows have characters that are the most distinct, the most different from each other, that complement each other. And I used as a perfect template was Winnie the Pooh, because if you ever watch that show, I mean, this is, we're going to a very different world here, <laughs> but. Tigger is nothing like Pooh. Pooh is completely different from Piglet, but completely different from Owl, completely different from Eeyore. And yeah. you have these six or seven characters that are so distinct from each other, you couldn't imagine one of them saying the other one's line because they're just so different. That made for fat, that made for easy writing, made for fat, for fast. We tried to do that with the X-Men to have eight people that were with Professor X. That were as different, humanly different as possible. Um, and we worked at, very hard at that at the beginning to choose, because there are a bunch of other characters we should have used. If we, as I said, if we had, you know, Colossus and Cable and Wolverine and Thunderbird, we would have had, you know, the gruff guys yeah. club. And telling stories with them is very difficult because they're too similar and they don't get out of each other's nerves enough. They don't, they don't, they're not as cross-purposes enough. So that was just kind of the setup. But what brought them together and made them seem to love each other was, I think, the harder thing. And I think we were given a gift by the fact of their mutancy and the fact that they were all there. It's almost like they were all eight, you know, uh, abandoned foster children yeah. that thrown together and had to make this family uh, to survive. So they had a real compelling reason because in fact we wrote spent a lot more time writing nasty people that gave them that gave mutants problems than we did other super mutants right because we felt like they say if you watch 10 episodes in a row 
where the X-Men just fight super mutants, you're wondering, or super villains that are also mutants or whatever, you, you're wondering what, you know, why are the X-Men together? Well, they, they're together because mutants have real trouble fitting in with the rest of society. So you want to, you want to show that. And that I think made the family stronger. They all had something to strive against together and yeah, they could all back. together and cope with each mm. other and things. Yeah. 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 It, it, it built up, it built up how much they depended on each other, which they might not, you know, Wolverine, I mean, half of them, we, we always had an episode where one of them wants to leave or one of them just tired of putting up with the rest of them, mm-hmm. but they always yeah. came back at the end because they cared too much about each other. And that's that you're right. That's the hardest thing to create. And I think their mutancy is what, Allowed us to do it. So but, it's more, it's more along the fact that different is good. The more different each individual character is, absolutely. the more well-rounded they're going to be as people, basically, yeah. and audience can connect with them things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like which, which is a little different from your normal life because you used to be hanging around with pals and you all, you know, maybe watch the same movie, whatever, listening to the same music. And you start sounding a lot alike and yeah. start having, using the same, uh, expressions. And so from the outside, I mean, that's very happy for you, but it's, it's not, it's not interesting when you're telling a TV story. <laughs> yeah. Have, yeah. Just having a great time and sounding alike. It just kind of doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. So, so I think that brings us to our close. First of all, I want to say thank you to my co-hosts, Tony and Josh, tonight. No, no problem. I'm off to read the downloaded sample chapter now. <laughs> and I want to say a massive thank you to, to Eric and Julia for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, where can everybody find you on, on the internet? We are on Twitter, at X-Men TAS, which is for the animated series. So Twitter. And I tend to, I'm on that at least an hour a day, just, you know, having fun there. We have a page on Facebook that's called Previously on X-Men, which is the title of the book, uh, which folks can find us at. And we have an email address, xmentas92 at gmail.com, if folks want to find us there. And also xmentas92 on Instagram. We're trying to, we're trying to put ourselves out there so folks can find us. So we can, you know, hopefully reach out to people. And the book is available technically internationally on Amazon. Yeah, 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 that's that's a thing. it's 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 hard to imagine. It's it costs something like thirty five pounds to mail the book from the U.S. to to England. So they don't. So the publisher doesn't send, mail them out. So here's, here's uh, the they, they publish they they publish them locally for you know in places outside the U.S. There'll, there'll be a publisher in London. There'll be a publisher in Paris. And so when you buy it through Amazon, they'll publish it locally for you. And the workaround we're trying to do is because if you bought it through Jacobs Brown Media Group, which is our publisher here in the U.S., you'd get the hardbound copy that Eric has signed because he has sat in our kitchen and signed several copies. Receive <laughs> the the deal is buy the book on Amazon, take a picture of yourself with the book, email it to us. Eric will sign the picture and he'll email it back to you, and that way you can get an autographed copy. It's not working. <laughs> kind of. It's not, kind of, yeah. not quite the same, but, but yeah, Amazon's the easiest thing. They should have it at a bit, say, uh, at big bookstores in, in, in major cities, but it's up to the bookstores to stock it or not. So that's, 
So we, we never know when we tell people if it's going to be available at your local bookstore. It, it depends. It's up to the bookstore where they've got it, but Amazon will always have it. Okay, that, that's brilliant. And, and dear listener, thank you for tuning in once more. We'll be back next week with the first of our mini reviews of this Pop Season 2. Until then, enjoy the show.